0: The National Archives podcast series. This talk is called The Reformation as Disruption. It was the keynote address given by Professor Richard Rex as part of the Reformation on the Record conference held on the 3rd of November 2017 at the National Archives Queue. The concept of disruption... Of a, a bit meretricious, perhaps it's had something of a makeover in recent years. It used to be a mere pejorative, rather like wicked, but it's come to stand for much else, particularly in the areas of military strategy and high tech industry. To disrupt an enemy's plans is good by being bad. In the tech sphere, of course, disruption is now a hooray word denoting the positive effects of startups and exciting new ventures. Here, perhaps you'll forgive me a little. Product placement. My introduction to this strange new world, or rather this strange new word, came a couple of years ago when my son Ed's AI music startup, Duke Deck, won the TechCrunch London Disrupt 2015. <coughs> and I noticed when I was putting this together that in a month's time, TechCrunch Disrupt 2017 will be opening for business in Berlin. So going back 500 years, I Rather like to see the 95 Theses as (laughs) tech-crunch-disrupt-Wittenberg-1517, with the, the new medium being radically adapted to the diffusion of radical ideas, spreading, of course, with astonishing speed. Well, saying something new about the Reformation at a general level is pretty challenging. Indeed, frankly, impossible. It's challenging even to say something interesting about the Reformation in general. The subject's been visited from so many sides, from up, from down, from England, from Europe, from the centre, from the localities, the elite, the people. It's possible, of course, to find the new at the local level, in the particular and the unique of the archive, and I look forward to learning a lot today, therefore. And I apologise to those of you whose papers I must miss tomorrow because of a Uh, call a family business elsewhere but in casting about for an idea on which to string together my reflections I fell upon something that dawned upon me perhaps here's the vestigial connection with our real purpose dawned upon me at various times when consulting various Tudor records in more than one set of sources that I've consulted there seem to be noteworthy gaps patches Around the later 1540s, the 1560s, the early, sorry, 1550s, early 1560s, the period that it was once fashionable to call the Mid Tudor Crisis. Now, the idea that English government was in in some sort of spasm of existential vulnerability under Edward and Mary has rightly been abandoned. The extraordinary achievement of Edward's government in imposing a Protestant religious system, and the equally astonishing achievement of Mary's government in overthrowing it, tells us all we need to know. Weak regimes can't do things like that. Nevertheless, from that, (coughs) as it were, occasional gap in the archives that we find in that period emerged the germ of this paper, a reflection on wider aspects of the Reformation in England as a disruption. And I'll start with Henry's Reformation, obviously, which broke lines of communication with Europe, but more importantly, with the past, The break with Rome was arguably mere schism, though Henry gave it as profound a theological meaning as he could, basing his royal supremacy on the unvarnished word of God and allowing the Pope to be denounced in his realms as Antichrist. But Stephen Gardiner, who probably did see Henry's Reformation as Catholicism without the Pope, was deeply offended when, on his way back from Regensburg in 1541, he was refused permission to celebrate Mass in the great church of St. Peter's in Louvain, despite the otherwise warm welcome extended to him as a notable public opponent of the Protestant Martin Butzer. But the break with the past was perhaps more visible than the break with the continent. It was unmissable in the dissolution of the monasteries and the closure of the pilgrimage shrines. Monasticism and pilgrimage reached right back to the origins of English Christianity. Henry and his publicists sought to construct an alternative past by way of an Anglo-Saxon church whose links to Rome were passed over in studious silence, uh, while appeal was made to the ancient British church and the figures of King Lucius and Joseph of Arimathea. The ghost of their researches still haunts the groves of academe in the guise of something called Celtic Christianity. Now, the closure of the monasteries was not, I always love to emphasize, the gentle process that somehow seems to be implied by those romantic ruins lovingly tended and visited today at fountains and rivers and Mount Grace, Tavistock, Byland, and the rest. We sometimes forget the the dissolved religious houses were ruthlessly asset-stripped before being sold off or sometimes given away, on condition that the new proprietor would demolish the church, if it hadn't already been done. Lewis Priory, the first major house to close by voluntary surrender, without prior involvement in rebellion, was actually, I think, perhaps the first building in England to be demolished with gunpowder, with explosives in spring 1538. This was a, a big thing. Monastic communities pensioned off broken up a few might have lived on as groups here or there nuns particularly whether out of devotion or merely out of the need to pull meagre resources perhaps more likely a few other monks and friars the observant franciscans for example quite a few of them left the country but most lived on their quiet lives lives made no easier at least at first by henry's self-righteous refusal to to release the ex-religious from their vows of celibacy might have been different if he'd been a monk, of course. But 1538, I think, was still more significant for that year-long campaign of iconoclasm played out mainly, though not exclusively, in the public square around Paul's Cross. Statues and relics from shrines across the country were brought to London at intervals and solemnly desecrated before crowds of thousands. And the destruction of the Rood of Boxley in February, was especially symbolic. The carved wooden crucifix at Boxley in Kent had long been a focus for pilgrimage. Indulgences were to be earned there, vows fulfilled, miracles sought. Boxley was not on the main pilgrimage route from Canterbury to London, though it was on the old, or very near the old trackway, the old road from Winchester to Canterbury, and would no doubt have harvested some pilgrims from there. Doubtless the rest cut down seven miles to Boxley from Rochester before heading back up to rejoin the London Road at Sittingbourne. But anyway, famously, when it was taken down in 1518, the crucifix was found to have joints and internal wires that had once enabled it to move. It was immediately denounced by Henry's polemicists as impious fraud perpetrated upon simple believers by corrupt clergy. Now, there's actually no evidence for this, There are no reports of the image in miraculous motion. The Henrician description of the internal mechanism, when you look at it, shows that it had long been in disuse. They talk, I think, of rotted wires. But it was a powerful charge nonetheless. And at the end of his sermon at St. Paul's Cross, the preacher, John Hilsey, Bishop of Rochester, invited the apprentice boys to tear the thing to pieces before it was burned. As Charles Risley says in his chronicle, after the sermon was done, the bishop took the said image of the rood into the pulpit and broke the vice, which i discover means the visage, the face, broke the vice of the same, and after gave it to the people again. And then the rude people and the boys broke the said image in pieces so that they left not one piece whole. Oh. Now, this spectacle of a crowd of excited youths smashing a crucifix must have been, I know, dangerous words in the mouth of a historian, but... Let them stand, must have been deeply shocking to a society for which the crucifix was the ultimate religious symbol. So too, I think, must have been the Eucharistic symbolism with which the bishop first broke the image and then gave it to the congregation. One is reminded of Eamon Duffy's remark that iconoclasm was the sacrament of Reformation. This was desecration of the most solemn kind. It wasn't that common for a bishop to preach at the cross, Paul's cross, I mean. Proceedings were endorsed, of course, as you know, by the attendance of the mayor and aldermen, and often enough, and I suspect particularly on this occasion, by royal councillors and courtiers. But ten years earlier, in 1528, Henry himself had made his views clear about the unknown miscreants who had lopped the head off well, the mere statue of the Blessed Virgin In Paris, speaking of the procession of reparation in which Francis I had personally taken part through the streets of the city, Henry, speaking to his privy chambermen, had commended the French king's virtuous and religious demeanour used in the ceremonies against the damnable and celerate demeanour of those worse than Jews, he added the ultimate insult for him, that would do such despite to the blessed images where they cannot do it to the thing itself. And yet again, ten years later, this kind of iconoclasm is official policy. Henry himself took part in the climax of the iconoclastic rituals of that year, the destruction of the martyrdom, that is, the shrine of St Thomas at Canterbury. He was there in person in late September, along with Cranmer and Cromwell, and John Bale, the Protestant ex-friar and polemicist who was there with his troop of travelling players. No doubt they performed his sadly lost play, The Impostures of Thomas Beckett. What wouldn't we give to have that? St Thomas himself, it seems, was exhumed while the, stri- while the shrine was stripped of its jewels and plate and votive offerings, and he was almost certainly put on trial in the presence of the Supreme Head and convicted of treason after which his bones, or what was left of them, were incinerated. I know there are arguments about this. News of the event, or news of the story of the event, flashed across Christian Europe. It was this that finally induced Pope Paul III to promulgate his decree of excommunication against the English king. The reclassification of England's premier saint as a traitor was soon reinforced by a proclamation which instructed the English people henceforth to talk not of St. Thomas of Canterbury, but of Thomas becket an instruction we have loyally obeyed ever since. Nothing could have expressed more eloquently than this solemn decanonization, the transfer of ecclesiastical authority from Pope to King. The disruptive effect of these campaigns of expropriation and iconoclasm must not be underestimated. One of the few parts of church services in England that was regularly delivered in English, I know almost none of it, but one of the few parts before the Reformation, was the recitation once a quarter of the so-called general sentence, a pithy summary of the nature of solemn ex- major excommunication under the various offences for which Christians might incur it ipso facto wherefore i do you to understand that cursing is such vengeance taking that it departeth a man from the bliss of heaven from housel shrift and all the sacraments of holy church and betakes him to the devil and to the pains of hell the which shall endure perpetually without end but if he have grace of our lord him to amend and what were some of the offenses which merited such punishment All those that deprive Holy Church of any right, or make of Holy Church any lay fee, that is hallowed or sanctified. All those that hold houses, manors, granges, of parsons, vicars, or of any other man of Holy Church, against their will. And all those that any manner of goods, movable or unmovable, away bear with strength, or wrongfully away, of which cursing they may not be absolved, till they have made satisfaction to whom the wrong is done." the implications of those words, which, uh, Henry, you will be unsurprised to know, quickly excised from the regular performance of the English liturgy, either in 1535 or 1536. Nevertheless, these words would have been echoing in people's ears as they saw the houses come down and the goods removed and the lands sold. But it wasn't just about canon law. It was also about the world which that canon law presupposed one pre-Reformation churchman, Thomas Ruthel, Bishop of Durham, opens a fascinating window into that world. As the Palatine Prince of Durham, Ruthel was responsible for temporal as well as spiritual matters in the county, with a particular duty, among other people, of course, for defence against the Scots, frequent marauders across the border. When the Scots invaded under James IV in 1513, they not only laid waste the country up there managed to capture norham castle one of the bishop's castles a key stronghold in the defense of the north russell was personally devastated by this unforeseen disaster he thought the castle impregnable but what's really interesting is how this man a right-hand man of richard fox and then of thomas wolsey a worldly prelate surely of all worldly prelates how he accounted for this disaster in the letters he wrote in the heat of events that September. I never felt the hand of God so sore touching me as in this, whereof I most humbly thank him. And after the inward search of conscience to know the cause of this provocation of God's displeasure against me, I shall reform it if it lie in my power and regard him more than the world hereafter. He took it spiritually. He saw it as a providential chastisement for his own spiritual shortcomings. And when soon after news came of the destruction of the Scottish army, cheerier news for him, and of the death of its king at Flodden, Roosevelt interpreted victory in equally religious terms. All believe, he proclaimed, all believe it's been wrought by the intercession of St Cuthbert, who never suffered injury to be done to his church, unrequited. The Scots might have done much more injury if they hadn't attacked St Cuthbert, emphasize. So by by marauding onto the lands of the bishop of the cathedral the Scots had brought down upon themselves the wrath of god through the intercession of Durham's patron st Cuthbert. When the men of the north marched into battle against superior numbers it was under the banner of st Cuthbert as well as that of st George that they marched. So the impact on that world view where the saints are living parts of the community, the impact on that of the apparent impunity with which king and ministers and nobles and gentry and burgesses grabbed their share of monastic land and loot surely cannot be underestimated. The dissolution disrupted by its mere fact an entire way of seeing God's world. The questioning, as it were, of the previously Taken for granted spiritual realities must have been profound from that moment onwards. Henry VIII had, in fact, begun by this a disruption, if you like, of the relations between the living and the dead. It would be taken much further during the reign of his son, under the guidance of Thomas Cranmer. In another characteristically brilliant apercu I'm sorry, it seems the only person I'm quoting today almost is Eamon Duffy, but well, <laughs> what can you do? In a characteristic apper, Sue, he observed how Cranmer's burial service in the Book of Common Prayer transformed the deceased from the second person in the action to the third. We no longer committed you to the earth, but him or her. It's a tiny change, but deeply revealing, completing, as it were, a process of disconnection from the dead, which had begun with restricting access to the saints, in the 30s now that process also saw the excision of the dirge from popular prayer books and of course the elimination of the uh, suffrages for the dead from the eucharistic prayer in cranmer's communion service it's not inappropriately i think being called the excommunication of the dead and the process was dramatically expressed in what the duke of somerset did To the Pardon Churchyard in St. Paul's, at St. Paul's, I mean, in London. John Stowe has preserved for us in the the description a a record of this staggering act of desecration, and I owe this to the work of uh, James Simpson. In scavenging for raw materials to build Somerset House on the Strand, the Duke not only tore down the walls and the chapel of the old churchyard complex outside the cathedral, incidentally, destroying a narrative wall painting of the Golfs macabre, modeled on that in Paris. That's a loss, I think. But ordered that the site be cleared of the remains of the dead. The bones of countless Londoners were unceremoniously dumped, as Stowe later reported. The bones of the dead, couched up in a charnel under the chapel, were conveyed from thence into Finsbury Field, through which I was passing so slowly on the train this morning. It's into Finsbury Field. By report of him who paid for the carriage, more than a thousand cartloads. And there they were dumped in the marsh, and the ground was in a short space raised afterwards by soilage from the city. That's where they took the crap. Uh, The ground was raised, and they built three mills. Well, this sort of callousness, of course, was not confined to Protestants. William Tracy had been dug up and burned back in 1531, and when Cardinal Poole visited Cambridge in 1557, Martin Bootser was likewise exhumed from his uh, honourable resting place in Great St. Mary's before being taken out into the Market Square and burned similar events, of course, at Oxford. And that desecration was almost respectful in its judicial formality when compared to what happened to poor Miles Buckley in St. John's College Chapel. He was turned up by accident, when William Fulke, the Puritan, arranged for the removal of the altar steps in 1565. The altar itself had gone five years before, but Fulke felt that the stone steps somehow preserved the spirit of idolatry. Buckley was turned up by accident. He'd only been buried in 1559. His will had been made at the high tide of the Marian Restoration, and his request of place of burial tells us, I think, all we need to know about his sympathies Some of his friends were still fellows when he popped out of the ground and the callous disturbance and casual disposal of his remains were among the charges that they brought against the Puritan faction in the Fellowship in the ructions that convulsed that college in the years that followed. Religious divisions were easily able to trump, it seems, the social ties and pieties even of collegiate life. Well, Benedict Anderson, of course, has—ah, oh, somebody other than Eamon—excellent has uh, has taught us to think of nations as imagined communities, and I suppose perhaps any community is an imagined community. We belong because we think we belong, and because other people think we belong. Well, the imagination of the medieval community extended easily to the dead, routinely and incessantly remembered in churchyards and churches by tombs and memorials, in masses, in bead rolls. We still have a surprisingly large number of those bead rolls. There's elaborate membership registers maintained by some of the grander confraternities. Corpus Christi in York, St Anne's in Knowles, the, the Palmers at Ludlow, there are quite a few others. But what Cranmer completed under Edward, at least in principle, was a redefinition of that community to exclude the dead. Living as we do in the world, he helped create It's difficult to imagine the disruption to one's view of and conduct in the world occasioned by such a doctrinal revolution. And that's quite apart from the abolition of the mass, a change so shattering that it provoked riots and turmoils across much of England, certainly much of southern England. Now to discuss the disruption arising from that to the understanding of the body of Christ... The social world would extend this lecture way beyond its allotted hour. I shall shall at once pass on to other things. What about the disruption among the clergy? The dumping onto the clerical labour market of thousands of ordained monks seriously disrupted the normal processes of clerical recruitment. A sudden surplus of priests led to an immediate collapse in numbers of ordinations. A process further exacerbated by the changes of Edward's reign. The closure of colleges, chantries, the termination of the jobbing market for hedge priests in obits and occasional masses for the dead left even more of them in search of work. And then the theological changes of those years, along with the anti-clerical campaigns against Sir John Lacklatin and Mistress Missa. It's a particularly good poem if you uh, ever get a chance to read it, Printed at the time, I'll give you, one guess as to what they rhymed with Mistress Missa, hollowed out the idea of the priesthood. The encouragement of clerical marriage from forty nine, the abandonment of its vestments, the abolition of the tonsia, the shift from Latin to English. All of this leached away the mystique of the priesthood. The new ordination rite introduced by Cranmer in 1550 made the cleric not the sacrificial functionary of the old order but the preaching pastor of the new, a very different man. With the surplus of old priests and the disruption of the very concept of priesthood, it's not surprising that hardly any ordinations were carried out in the few years of Cranmer's new ritual, which passed before the accession of Mary. Demand for ordination was as low as demand for the ordained. This disruption worsened under Mary, albeit for different reasons. A good many parish priests, after all, did avail themselves of that new freedom to marry, especially in London and the Southeast. Such a flagrant contravention of Catholic canon law was never going to be overlooked by the Marian regime. And in 1554, diocesan visitations set about identifying married priests and chivying them out of their benefices. There were no exceptions. All married priests were presented with their choice, accept canonical separation from the women they called their wives, their marriages were simply not recognized, or they could no longer officiate as priests in the church. The vast majority, of course, driven by need or hope of gainful employment, accepted separation, though a few, Matthew Parker, for example, kept faith instead with their spouses. Even then, as you all know, I'm sure know, those who accepted separation were (coughs) not reappointed to the parishes in which they had kept their wives, but had to seek preferment elsewhere. It was one of the largest games of musical chairs in English church history. <clears throat> we shouldn't, by the way, simply assume that all those who took wives are to be regarded as conviction Protestants, though we can be reasonably be sure that most conviction Protestants in the priesthood probably took wives. Most of those separated from their wives that year did accept reappointment to other benefices, the readiness to continue to serve does not necessarily mean that they were all convinced catholics any more than the marriage means that they were all convinced protestants and it's this disruption i suspect in the ranks of the clergy that may go quite some way to explain my admittedly rather tentative observation sense of archival gaps and breaks in the mid-tudor record when one has to consult for example the clergy of the church of england online database that wonderful invention one often finds that it's during the 1540s, and particularly the 1550s, that our knowledge of parochial incumbents becomes patchy. Oxford and Cambridge colleges that I've looked at the records of at any rate often seem to have holes and punctures, as it were, in the records at this point. Maybe as one set of fellows or one bursar flees of the college to uh, avoid visitation or inquisition or worse, and another takes over, maybe as one guy's room is just emptied out by the next occupant. But that continuity that we usually see in such institutions seems jeopardised in this period. Parish registers introduced by Cromwell in the 38 injunctions. At one level we would expect them to be plentiful from 1540. (coughs) And there are enough parochial registers for the next 20 years to have allowed the Cambridge group for population history to start its extraordinarily powerful statistical analysis of English population from that year, from 1540. But we all know that in practice, more runs of registers start after 1560. Now that may simply reflect inevitable teething problems of a new system, but the added disruptions of clerical turnover and of course plague mortality, of which more in a moment, surely exacerbated it. With Churchwarden's accounts, whose survival is in any case of course very patchy, There are arguably signs of reluctance to be involved in innovative and destructive processes. The the accounts of Great St Mary's in Cambridge are very good, but they get a little bit messy around about the crucial years, 1550, 51, 52. A couple of areas one doesn't see this. Episcopal registers are not bad, although I think there are gaps in them, as it were, not lost registers or missing registers, but I don't think they quite get all the information they should. And wills. Probate seems to have gone on pretty consistently but then of course probate is something for which there is a great deal of not only official command but also popular demand. It's not surprising that stuff to do with property survives a bit better. There are of course other reasons than religious turmoil for some of this mid-Tudor disruption. The most important would be those two influenza epidemics that bookend the 1550s. F.J. Fisher realised back in the 60s or even the 50s, I can't remember the date of the article, that the epidemic at the end of Mary's reign was a major demographic crisis. And it was clear that the epidemic of Edward's reign also ranked high on the list. But it's only since the work of that Cambridge group on English population that these epidemics have been (coughs) recognised, not sufficiently widely in my view, for the calamities they were. That second visitation of what seems to have been flu under Mary is reckoned by Wrigley and Schofield to have been the greatest demographic disaster in English history between 1540 and 1640. A death toll an order of magnitude higher than that of the plague of the 1660s, of which we all know. Maybe Fisher thought, I don't think Wrigley and Schofield go this high, but Fisher thought maybe as much as a fifth of the population was carried off I think it's certainly more than a tenth. The massive turnover, then, in parish clergy that we see particularly around 1560 is not solely down to issues of conscience. It's also a matter of headcount. Plague mortality exacerbated the shortfall in ordinations. and it took the Church of England, of course, a decade or two to recover recruitment to anywhere near pre-Reformation levels. Gradually, though, that new religion settled in. Eamon Duffy again notes Christopher Tricky's pious interjection in his curious parish register, Deo gratias, thanks be to God, in 1570, I think, or 1572, when a couple of parishioners <coughs> donated to Morbath Parish Church, a handsomely bound, velvet bound, I think, book of common prayer. Choral, even of course, early became popular in the few major churches that maintained choral establishments. And that gives me an excuse to mention one of my favourite 16th century figures, the profoundly eccentric fellow of St. John's College, Cambridge, Everard Digby, almost certainly an uncle of the gunpowder plotter, Everard Digby, who when accused by the Puritan master William <coughs> Whitaker, of covert popery and systematic absence from chapel, explained that he attended chapel regularly, down the road at King's, where they have music. Uh, King's, of course, retained its choir and organ. The musical tradition at John's had been cut off abruptly by Pilkington and Fulk back in the 1560s and will not be revived again till the 1630s. Digby, by the way, manifested his own musical talents by disturbing the peace of the college on a regular basis with loud fanfares on his hunting horn which was one of just two dozen ways in which he sought to provoke and irritate his Puritan colleagues. (laughs) At the parish level, of course, as Judith Maltby has shown us, the, the quiet routine of matins and evensong became part of the social fabric by the 1630s, so that it had considerable survival value, even when the Church of England was in effect disestablished during the interregnum. So in a certain sense, then, the English Reformation is over By the 1580s, England was, as Christopher Hague put it, a nation of Protestants, even if it's not entirely clear what its Protestantism was. Yet in another sense, that Reformation in England was not over and never would be. England was an unfinished Reformation. Its church, an essentially Protestant body, with maybe some cancerous lumps, one might say, of Catholicism somehow surviving in the fabric This largely thanks to the idiosyncrasies of Queen Elizabeth, her hankering after the beauties of the old religion, her visceral dislike of Calvin, and her complete tone-deafness to theological detail. The late medieval church, of course, should not be seen simplistically as part of some merry England world we have lost. It was not without its tensions. Nevertheless, I would set my face against attempts to read back deep divisions into the pre-Reformation era, whether they are conceived in terms of lolody or in terms of talk about Catholicisms. Things did change with Henry. At the start of his reign, he was just as deeply interested in religion as at the end. Yet at the start, he did not have to legislate for religious uniformity. When he took his first army to France in 1513, he strove before he left to make peace among his <coughs> bishops. Led by the Bishop of Winchester, Richard Fox, a group of them were challenging the claims of the prerogative court of Canterbury, which exercised jurisdiction over the wills of people, as I'm sure you all know, whose property lay in more than one diocese. Now this, of course, this privilege struck directly at the interests of ordinary diocesan and probate courts, hence the row. But while Henry was evidently upset by the discord this sordid dispute stirred up, he tried to deal with it by letters and personal interviews and interventions. And discord, though it was, and I think it's the biggest row there is in the church at that time, it didn't break ecclesiastical unity. Again, Henry may have had concerns about Lollardy. Certainly the English church launched onto one of its periodic onslaughts against Lollard communities almost as soon as he'd come to the throne. And I think there's a connection. Though I can't prove it. But he felt no call to write a book against the Lollards. Nor did he engage personally with the campaign against that minority. But in 1545, after 20 years of Tyndall's New Testament and 10 years of Henry's royal supremacy, Henry found it necessary to ask his parliament, Behold then, what love and charity is amongst you? when one calleth another heretic and anabaptist, and the other in turn calleth him papist, hypocrite, and Pharisee. Be these tokens of charity among you. He always was rather nauseatingly self-righteous. Since the break with Rome, there had been three attempts to resolve religious disputes and divisions by declaring the content of the faith. The Ten Articles of 36, the Bishop's Book 37, the King's Book 43. And there had been three Acts of Parliament directed towards the same goal. The six Articles of 39, the Act of True Opinions of 1540, and the wonderfully entitled Act for the Advancement of True Religion in 1543. That one lasted four years. There had been no need for any of this prior to 1535. The late medieval church was indeed crucially supported in orthodoxy by De Heretico Combarendo, but Lancastrian legislation hadn't found it necessary to determine what the nature of orthodoxy was. It was so widely agreed there were no special attempts to define it. Henry VIII was, in short, quite right to detect a level of religious division in his realm that had not been known before. It's unlikely that he was sufficiently self-aware to realise that this was his legacy. Disruptive though it was, the Edwardian Reformation might conceivably have resolved the religious divisions bequeathed by Henry. There was some resistance to change. The odd outbreak here and there, the failed rebellions of 49. But it grew quieter with every passing year. 20 years of that, I think, in England would have been as firmly reformed as Sweden was firmly Lutheran. But Edward's premature death, Mary's Caesar of power, changed all that. The dying roots of Catholicism were watered and the plant sprang up again with new vigour. Whether that vigorous Protestantism in turn of Edward's reign could have been stamped out by a longer Marian persecution is for me unlikely. Parche, Eamon Duffy. Yes, I do disagree with him sometimes. I do not see any serious diminution in the persecution in Mary's final year. There were still plenty of Protestants left. The legacy of Mary was the survival in any form at all of English Catholicism. And as a result of that all, the first five years of Elizabeth's reign see something new in the Reformation story, a widespread refusal to accept change merely because it was law. From the solid opposition of the phalanx of Catholic bishops right down to the greater numbers of lay folk who manifested their sympathies in many different ways, the reaction to change was different this time the press campaign of the Louverness writers was unprecedented and when the regime tested the waters in 1564 by asking the new bishops to report on the religious commitments of local elites the ensuing reports all bore witness to one brute fact in religious terms England was split three ways all the bishops whose returns survive agreed in different wording shows that it's coming from them I think that the elites could be divided into, so to speak, the good, the bad, and the ugly, the favourers of true religion, the foes, and the indifferent. Proportions varied, and of course the adversaries of true religion were never more than a substantial minority anywhere. But this was five years into the settlement, a period as long as Mary's entire reign. Christopher Hague is almost certainly correct. In his analysis, that with stronger leadership and better management, English Catholicism might have made a a better go of things over the next 20 or 30 years, in the event, of course, numbers diminished pretty rapidly, despite the arrival of Jesuits and seminaries to shore things up. But even with that, one recusant survey from Yorkshire in 1603 gives us an interesting comparison. Something like 3,000 recusants identified in Yorkshire a number higher than the total of all recorded Lollards in the entire history of the movement. It's not a like-for-like comparison, of course, it's a bit cheap. But, as Peter Lake has pointed out, that role played by Catholicism, which is to say by anti-Catholicism, in helping to maintain the shaky unity of the Church of England was crucial. Again, the pre-Reformation of persecuted Lollardy It hadn't had the kind of internal divisions within itself which needed to be allayed by finding scapegoats in the way that papists served the Reformed Church of England. Well, that three-way split, of course, of 64 did not endure. Protestantism triumphed. But it was beset from the start by its own tensions and divisions, themselves a legacy of the divisions and disruption of the mid-Tudor decades. There isn't time now. ...to explore the emergence of Puritanism... ...and under the impact of anti-Puritanism and Laudianism, ...the emergence of separatism. So I shall end instead with a reflection from... ...if you'll forgive me, a much longer perspective. The nation of England... ...or perhaps better the nation of the English... ...that imagined community... ...was by the time of the Reformation an ancient thing. But it was in a certain sense... The creation of Pope Gregory and Saint Augustine of Canterbury, non Angli, said Angeli, or at least perhaps the creation of the Venerable Bede, whose ecclesiastical history of the English people, one might say, popularized the concept and told its story of the creation of an English people through Catholic evangelization from Rome. If the English nation was an imagined community, it had been dreamed up by Catholics. So it's hardly surprising that one of the Catholic refugees at Louvain, Thomas Stapleton, sought to dissuade Queen Elizabeth from her Protestant ways. I'll give it away, it didn't work. Uh, (laughs) But he sought to dissuade her by dedicating to her in 1565 the first English translation of Bede's history. A very interesting read it makes too. The preface, that is, of course, a story as well, but I'm sure you know that. Making the standard appeal to antiquity and tradition... Stapleton argues that the consistent faith and political stability of 900 years, yes, yes, I know, are to be attributed to the commitment of the English monarchy to the maintenance of Catholic Christianity in communion with Rome, while heresy and schism, of course, inevitably breed dissension and sedition. For Stapleton, as a Catholic, of course, the disruption of the Reformation had been almost total. It hadn't cost him his life, but it cost him everything else, his home, his country, His career. He was certainly a bishop in the making before he left. But even for those who adapted more easily, things would never be the same. England became Protestant. Protestantism became English. In the longer term, even England's Catholics become just a little Protestant. Think, for example, of Lingard Newman. Obviously, half of them are converts anyway, let's face it. Acton You don't get much more liberal Protestant than Lord Acton, really. Chesterton, war, green, Catholic products, yes, but of a Protestant culture. We're all, in some ways, Protestants. But today, as we look back from a country which has, in a couple of generations, rather suddenly and rather (coughs) obviously, ceased to be a Christian country, as we look back upon a country which, less suddenly but more unexpectedly, ceased in, say, three generations to be a Catholic country, I think we gained a little extra insight into what happened. Perhaps it takes an age of disruption like our own to appreciate the momentous character of that earlier disruption that was the Reformation. Thank you for listening. This podcast is copyright to the National Archives, all rights reserved. It is available for reuse under the terms of the Open Government Licence.